My name is Dean Gardner, Softcats Technology Director, and we're here to explain it. Every episode, our team of experts are here to talk tech in simple, jargon-free language, and today is no exception, but with the past, present, and future in mind. In the past and over the last 12 months, Explain It has generated over 20,000 unique downloads and covered an array of topics. In the present, we have a collective group of Softcat technologists here to share their thoughts on tech. And in future, we have a new presenter. So please welcome Helen Gidney, Softcat's very own head of architecture. Hello, Helen. How are you? Hi, Dean. I am great. Thank you. I am so excited to be here and take over presenting Explain IT. Explain IT is almost an institution of a technology podcast with some amazing episodes in the past. So I've definitely got some big shoes to fill. The last time I was on the podcast was back in 2018. uh, And a lot of things have changed since then for me, for Softcat and for the podcast. So we'll still be looking at some really cool new and future technologies on the podcast. But with my role being in the more practical realities of the tech that we talk about here... I'll be bringing a slightly different voice to the podcast. Fantastic stuff, Helen. And um, we're going to jump straight into it. I want to get your tech predictions. Let's do your tech prediction for 2024. What what do you think is happening and what's going to happen? So my world is all about building the solutions, right? So taking all of the cool and clever technologies we talk about on this podcast and in the industry and stitching them together to make them work for customers. So with the rise of AI that we've seen in 2023, I predict more and more customers will be using it, which will mean smaller AI models springing up to target specific use cases. A lot of those targeted use cases can then sit on smaller hardware footprints. So my prediction for 2024 will be the year of AI platforms. We've seen NVIDIA's take on the AI chipset and AMD just releasing one to rival it. So it'll be really interesting to see what vendors take advantage of these chipsets and build their own AI in a box models, or even more complex reference architectures in collaboration with these chipsets and others. Yeah, and I, and I think we've actually seen some announcements recently from Intel as well in that space. So I agree. I think those those chip manufacturers, uh, semiconductors, etc., all the manufacturing around that is going to go great guns and explode over the next few years. But um, so let's move on then, Helen. Let's do it between us. Let's go. Absolutely. We're going to jump straight into one of the technologists we've got. And we'll introduce you, I think, as we go through and introduce your bits. Is that right? Um, so let's go on to Gary Hawkins. Or his name says Gary John Hawkins. I had no idea that was a middle name, Gary. There we go. So, Helen, what, what do we want to ask Gary? What's going on in his world? Let's, 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 let's give him a question. Perfect. Let's uh, dive right in, Gary. So, um, apologies. I may have stolen your thunder a little bit talking about platforms there. But... As Chief Technologist for Hybrid Platforms and Data, talk to us about what's happening in your world this year. Your light rain will now be my thunder, just to uh, set the scene. So in 2023, the focus has been taking our customers on the journey of understanding the many dynamic and pervasive changes in our field. Um, and pretty much how to help them innovate their businesses much better. Um, And in SoftCut, we have four key tenets that bring up the hybrid data platform services. So I'm gonna take you through four of those. Um, So first we start with modernizing infrastructure, legacy, um, and 
a lot of focus in the last six months has been around hyper-converged infrastructure because there are so many benefits as hyper-converged will bring to a customer that tick a many a number of commercial and technical boxes. So it's really integrating the storage, the network, and the compute into a single unified stack, whether that's on-prem, whether it's into the cloud, or whether it's to edge compute. And of course, that operationalization of how the customer's resource and do that is critical. And what we see by moving to an HCI uh, platform or strategy is it also changes the commercial dynamics from a CapEx to an OpEx, which we see is being embraced by many companies now. And it allows them to look at the consumption model. And so the old adage of buying physical infrastructure to dynamically change your strategy, which is so pervasive, is better that the OpEx consumption pays you grow. What that also then does is it by moving into modernizing infrastructure, it reduces your footprint, which is awesome for power consumption and is awesome for getting a smaller footprint in what could have been 10 racks of physical infrastructure into about two or three in the, uh, I guess, the HCI stack. It also deploys applications and services and workloads much better. It allows people to get into the DevSecOps world, which I think some customers still struggle with. Certainly putting Sec in DevSecOps, they don't quite like doing that. Um, but it also introduces them into things like containerization into Kubernetes, and that's really good for moving workloads to on-prem to the cloud. But furthermore, for many industries, it's also very good for moving it to the edge. So that whole simplification. And then, of course, what we're also doing is improving the operational efficiency of how they manage it end to end. And obviously, the final thing is to reduce the power consumption, which is always a big tick because it absolutely uh, plays uh, adage to their sustainability in ESG consumer. So um, that's the first tenet. The other two I'll just briefly cover data governance, you know, data governance, the precursor to AI. We could talk about that all day and I'm sure we're going to cover that in much more depth, but it's more about taking the right decisions for data and applications. And they're the things to me that drive the business outcomes. That's the key tenet to driving the right infrastructure modernization. And then if you do that right, you end up with data platform services. The reality of taking data insights to C-level, talking their language from an IT, and also then showing their innovation to drive new businesses. And I guess finally, you've got to look at the hyperscalers. So the changes that I've seen in the platforms are hyperscalers, both public and private, helping customers move from on-prem to cloud, back to private cloud, PaaS, serverless, bare metal, the options are endless. It's confusing, complex, but certainly with an HCI focus, it very much helps them, certainly with the soft cut model of go-to-market as well. Gary, a couple of bits there. A lot of bits there, actually. Let's, let's, put, let's put it there. Apps in the data, application transformation. It's something that people have been attempting to do forever, I guess, in technology. Is it becoming easier or is it harder with all the options that are available? It should be easier. I think the way that you explain it to the customer has to be very simple. But you've got to remember all the Salesforce, the SAPs, the work days, all were written for on-prem. Everybody wants to get out the stickiness of legacy to get to SaaS, but not everything's available in SaaS. So they try it in the cloud and not everything works in the cloud because they don't have the resources. So I think you have to take a step back and 
look at the whole stack of applications, look at the maturity of what those applications are today. And I think transformation is about the project of the application delivered to the end user. So looking, is it PaaS, IaaS, is it serverless? Have they got the skills to run it in containers as event-driven microservices? So I think it's not a question that they will know the answer to. It's about cleanly and simply giving them the options that you see fit that particular application and its criticality to their business. So I think that's a, a fair summary, Helen, isn't it? Of that, that proposition, anything else before we move on to Kieran? Absolutely. So there was one piece I just wanted to pick on for a, a final comment. You mentioned data insights and you talked about how that can help give that information to C-suite and senior leadership. How do you see that sort of taking on uh, over this year and, and potentially next and seeing improvements there? Well, if you don't do your data governance and you don't clean, secure, mask and classify your data, you're not ready for AI. And therefore, you don't have the data insights about your own business to be able to take external large language models and make that an innovation. So it's about getting behind the IT project that's known as data governance in the old way. And I don't mean backup, restore, archive you know, um, immutable and ransomware. I mean, true data analytics. You get there at the end of a data governance assessment. That's when your data analytics skills come in. If you can find the people, that's if you're really lucky, your chief digital officer comes on board and they're the ones know how exactly how to manipulate it in the C-suite. And then, of course, if you do get data scientists because you're in that type of scientific uh, healthcare or medical area, only then can they do their job. So you have to get the data governance before AI becomes the right trigger to be able to move your business towards. And have taken us right into AI isn't everything. So I'll pause it there. Thank you, Gary. Let's, let's bring Kieran in here then. And we're going to jump into the world of, well, espionage, cyber, security, James Bond territory. Are you, are you James Bond, Kieran? Is that, is that, is that the, the title? Is that what you do? You're, you're a spy? Or? He had a lot more hair than me, mate. That's yeah, true. I, I'd be a terrible James Bond. We'll take it on that espionage uh, spy track and we'll touch in on uh, hacking, cyber attacks. Kieran, as, as chief technologist for cybersecurity, you will absolutely be all over this and seeing that massive growth of cyber attacks in 2023 and a huge increase over the next couple of years with it being predicted to hit $10.5 trillion by 2025. I looked that one up um, with the amount of tax that are going to be happening. So how has that affected cybersecurity in 2023? We have, we have some damning stats, don't we, um, in cybersecurity. So if I put some context around that 10.5 trillion by 2025, that would make it the third largest market economy in the world as it stands behind China and the US. The UK is currently six at 3.1 trillion. So that's an incredible amount of money to generate more than three times the UK's economy in terms of cyber attacks and, and cyber crime. I think the reason for that is there's another interesting stat I'll drop in there. The likelihood of a cyber crime entity being detected and then prosecuted in the US alone is estimated at around 0.05%. So if you think about that amount of money is relatively low risk as well, isn't it? So that's why that exists currently. 
I think if we look at how we're getting attacked, that's changed slightly. So in terms of threats, initial access vectors have changed in the last 12 months. So exploit now sits at around 33% of all initial access vectors and, and phishing sits at 10% less at 23%. So over half of all initial access vectors around e-crime and targeted attacks use two pretty standard forms of access, right? So things that we can't patch or are not aware of that are vulnerable in our internet-facing assets or our attack surface, and then people, um, preying on people. Um, and then I think if you look at the other couple of things, probably another two things that have been affected by what we've seen with those really damning stats. We've kind of responded and industry has responded and globally we have responded in what has basically been the globalization of, of operations for businesses. There's been a massive impact on governance risk and compliance. So we've had a really large increase in the amount of regulatory uh, that we are seeing, both from independent bodies that provide frameworks and certification like the International Standards Organization uh, and NCSC. We've also seen quite a lot of government legislation and mandates that are growing things like um, Digital Operational Resiliency Act for Financial Services, NIS2, the Telecom Security Act uh, for telecommunications providers that's been chucked over the fence to Ofcom to go and regulate. And then, of course, it wouldn't be human of me not to mention AI. And we have the draft EU AI Act, uh, which is coming up as well. And then if you look at how that's affected enterprise, just as, a, just as an example, another stat for you, Forbes reckons the cost of compliance alone is $10,000 per employee, which is insane if, if you think about the tens of thousands of people that make up and a typical enterprise global company, right? And then the last thing that I'd mentioned that it's probably changed is um, there's a really big key term around cybersecurity at the moment, which is resilience. If you think about that, what that word even means, and you just look at the dictionary or the theosaurus definition of what resilience is, that probably tells you where we are in terms of where defenders are in terms of adversaries. This is a big culture change, though, and I think it's incredibly positive. So rather than looking at things from an isolated disaster recovery or business continuity planning point of view, we're using um, methodologies to basically cross compliance and security. So we're using compliance as the bare minimum that we must do as an organization within cybersecurity. And then we're using the secure methodology to build on top of that so we can be much better. And that, in terms of resilience, maps to enterprise risk, business risk. And we're starting to form a bigger culture where cybersecurity as a lens can go and provide more granular risk levels to business processes. Um, so I think that's that's probably three distinct areas that has changed and how that has affected cyber and because of that, that really damning stat, right? Kieran? Yeah. As a bit of a plug, if you want to listen to last year's tech predictions, please do. And you talked about, I believe, resilience then. Um, so my question 
is do you think organizations have become more resilient in 2023? Because you said there's a lot of regulation, there's a lot more uh, uh, legislation coming out, uh, governance coming out. But do you think on the coalface, if you will, that companies are more resilient this year than they were last year around cyber? Yeah, you can look at, I'll draw you to one stat for that. Um, And I think it's one I probably mentioned last year, which was over three quarters of organizations did not have an instant response plan. That's dropped about 10% in the last 12 months overall as a stat. I know we can take stats, you know, you've got to put a bit of context around them, but and an instant response plan does not guarantee you increased resilience, but it's, it's a genuine boots on the ground way to see that people are taking this a little bit more seriously as they should. I think as with most culture changes, if you look at compare that to what we've had to do in terms of cyber education as a vocation cyber security you know hasn't been long standing like other vocations within information technology there's a lot of effort and time that goes into bringing those levels of understanding up around cybersecurity just like we will have with artificial intelligence as well so if you go into a room now with 500 people you'll have dozens of different levels in terms of understanding of what artificial intelligence even is. And 10 years ago, you could have set the same for cybersecurity. So I think it will take more time, but we are getting there. Good stuff. We're getting there. Helen, are we getting there? Well, leads nicely onto my question, because as you've said, a lot of stats in there around we're getting better, we are having better governance, but it still costs a lot per employee. And that that percentage of customers with incident response plans is less, but still there's a lot of them without it. So where should our customers be concentrating their cybersecurity? Yeah, million dollar question, right? And it's going to be obviously pragmatically speaking, as someone that's obviously come from the engineering and the architecture world and operations, it's going to be different for each organization, whether you're a public sector body, whether you're a charity, whether you're a private business, whether you're publicly traded. I think Some of the trends in terms of the market is quite interesting. So if we look at customer buying habits, it still continues to be very high and heavily weighted around prevent, detect and respond, if I was to use the NIST cybersecurity framework um, domains. So that sort of tooling you could equate to email, endpoint detection response, managed detection response and security awareness. So those types of things. I think what a lot of organizations are doing is they're looking at um, another big term that we've got in, in cyber at the moment is consolidation. We've invested quite a lot of money as people in the last five or six years in cybersecurity technology. And believe it or not, consolidation, the trend, the largest driver is not spend. That is second um, from the data that we see, but top is actually operational overhead. So it's the ability for security operations teams and governance risk and compliance and business risk to deliver and have a reduction in headcount with a much better, less complicated tool set. I'll drop another stat in to support that. All you need to do is look at Microsoft, and I'm sure Rich is going to come on to this later. Just look at their security business from 2017 to 2023. They've had 30% compound annual growth alone in security. That's because they have a massive consolidation play. And I think that's really important for customers to go and deliver on that really large gap that we've got with adversaries at the moment. 
And in terms of where we're seeing customers consolidate for a little bit more of a granular answer, we've seen a lot of changes around identity. Microsoft themselves launched Entra ID in May. So identity platforms are becoming more centralized and people are looking to use cyber to actually increase productivity and, and user experience and drive to things like passwordless. Security operations is bringing us back to some of Gary's points, actually. Um, we work hand in hand on, on a lot of things at the moment. And in security operations, that's been private versus public data lakes. So how do I use consume and layer analytics across data sets in order to I'm making the right decisions in a quick amount of time. And that's what security operations is all about. So we've had a large sort of change in that environment and that's evolved quite significantly with the use of public data lakes leading to extended detection response technologies, which opens up much more sort of mature capabilities for smaller customers and organizations, which is really good. And then cloud is, is the one I will finally hit on that we've seen quite a lot of change in, in terms of the last 12 months. We've, we've had a lot of vendors moving to standardized cloud security offerings. We've had a decrease in open source tooling because a lot of people have found it difficult to scale and it's not really in theme with our consolidation word that I just mentioned either. So Gary mentioned DevSecOps. So basically integrating security best practice, secure by design, all the way from code development to your runtime has seen a massive uptake in terms of security tooling that is welcomed by developers and not creating friction. So that's probably in a fairly large nutshell, I guess, what has been changing and what we should try and do at least. And that's what we've seen happening. Amazing. And continues the trend of IT actually improving business operations, not just being used to, to stop problems. So also there, you, you mentioned obviously Microsoft and Rich will bring you in later to talk about a bit about Microsoft specifically, but obviously Microsoft being what a security and AI company, I think that's kind of uh, a massive security business now. That's what you're, you're, that's what you alluded to. But they own, they don't just do security in AI; they also do an operating system. They do Windows, classic Windows that's kind of been updated, upgraded, and will continue to be over the next few years. And this is a good time if we're going to be talking about that stuff to bring in Jack Lewis to talk about hybrid working. Beautiful segue there, Dean. Absolutely. <laughs> You've done this before. So, yes, Jack Lewis, our Chief Technologist for Hybrid Working. As Dean mentioned there, Windows has always been a prominent product of Microsoft and it's had a big moment this year with the upgrade from 10 to 11. So, Jack, how has that affected changes in hybrid working? Yeah, it has affected change. What I would say about 2023 is that was about AI everywhere in the world of workspace, and obviously that's going to continue throughout 2024 and beyond. Um, from a Windows perspective, we've got some exciting developments happening with the hardware vendors. Uh, so coming soon, customers will be able to purchase devices that have NPU chipsets inside of them. So neural processing units, which will allow them to do localized processing for AI workloads. Now, this is going to require Windows 11. So that's worth calling out if you're running Windows for your uh, compute and delivery of apps. 
And it's also going to be dependent on the apps that want to interact with those MPUs interacting with the operating system kernel in the right way. So there might be some improvements or some changes that need to be made to those native apps that run on Windows. But to answer your question more directly, Windows 10 is scheduled to go end of life October 2025. So popular topic of conversation at the moment is with customers on how they can successfully migrate to Windows 11. Customers in the past, about six, seven years ago, when we helped them migrate from seven to 10, had varying degrees of success. That was a very difficult thing to do in a lot of ways, more so because of the app compatibility. But this time around with Windows 11, we're not seeing the same sort of challenges related to app compatibility when customers move from Windows 10 to Windows 11. There are challenges though around device compatibility. So the device hardware specification requirements for running Windows 11 have changed quite significantly. And what we're seeing is that organizations have some devices out there anywhere between maybe 20 to 40% in some of our customers that literally need to be replaced in order to allow them to move to Windows 11, which in some ways that's not ideal because it means they've got to find some budget that they didn't know that they needed to find. Uh, but in other ways, it means that we're able to then migrate them to a device that has one of these MPU chipsets inside of them potentially so that they can then start using those for AI workloads, apps, and process that data locally. From a prediction perspective, what I'd love to see in 2024 is organizations doing adoption change management well, following best practices, and hoping that that becomes more mainstream i.e. it becomes the rule rather than the exception. And the reason why I'd love to see this is in that world of workspace, this year in November, we saw Microsoft 365 Core Palette become generally available. And we've had lots of conversations internally and externally with customers. And the messaging is that you need to focus on four things in order to get into that Microsoft 365 Core Palette ready state. And I'm sure Rich will expand on some of these. But the first one's obviously the licensing. At the moment, there are only certain customers that can purchase that and that are entitled to it. The second one's around data governance, which Gary covered from a structured data perspective. We're more talking about the unstructured data that maybe sits in SharePoint OneDrive here. So the stuff that the Microsoft Graph would have the ability to reason over. Important that you've got the right levels of governance being applied there. Using either Microsoft's inbuilt technologies or maybe some third-party products should you need that. The third one, which is heavily linked to governance, is around data quality. So making sure that you haven't got a lot of garbage in your Microsoft 365, because if you do, the insight that Copilot's going to be pulling from that data isn't going to be very useful. But then the fourth thing is all about enablement. The Copilot license is, at the moment, $30 per user per month. And of course, businesses look at that and they go, we've got to justify that additional spend that we're having to make. The way that you do that is, of course, get yourself technically ready with that governance and that data quality but make sure that you've enabled the users so that they know how to effectively interact with that technology and so that they're going to definitely get value out of it when you give them access to it. The other exciting thing about Copilot is, of course, it can now be extended using Copilot Studio and messaging extensions. Really exciting. This, I mean, I'm one of the lucky ones at Softcat. I do have access to Copilot. It can get a little bit context locked sometimes. So you are operating and you're using Copilot in the context of a specific meeting transcript it looks like these capabilities that allow you to extend Copilot can then get it out of that context locked uh, and then allow it to draw insight from data that exists outside of Microsoft 365. So if your application, your line of business application has some APIs, you could use the messaging extension Copilot Studio capabilities 
to then say, well, actually, there's some information here that is relevant, so therefore we'll make you aware of that. Uh, the possibilities are somewhat limitless. They're very exciting. In that world of productivity as well, we've also seen some turmoil in the world of virtual desktop infrastructure, so VDI. And I'm increasingly seeing customers wanting to kick the tires on Azure Virtual Desktop, which isn't a new technology. It's been around for about five years, but obviously it's grown in maturity. Customers are now uh, aligning to the mindset of using VDI where it's appropriate. So using something like Azure Virtual Desktop to deliver computing apps where it makes sense to do that, rather than using it as a primary way to deliver computing apps. That seems to be a switching to using premium devices as your primary way. So premium devices with these new MPU chipsets on installed, running Windows 11, that's the way you primarily deliver your computing apps and then using VDI where it's appropriate uh, on a case-by-case basis. I'm also expecting to see more and more of an explosion of use of Mac in the enterprise. The reason for this as well is because of the new platform single sign-on capabilities with EntraID. That seems to have unlocked a lot of use cases around using Mac in the enterprise. And again, going back to using something like Azure Virtual Desktop, if you're delivering some computing apps via that methodology, that means that the Windows apps that you can't install onto your Mac can now be delivered quite effectively down to Mac, and then you can secure and manage it appropriately using an MDM that's capable of doing that. So that's the productivity stuff. From an experience perspective, Adam covered this last year in the tech predictions, but I'm expecting us to increasingly see customers want to get value out of the digital employee experience, so the DEX toolings. Now, this may, in some cases, require customers to require or require them to purchase an, a new product, or it could be that they want to get more useful insight out of an existing product. But it's really important that customers do get value out of these tools because essentially they provide data-driven insight into overall productivity and potential happiness of your workforce from a workspace perspective. From a collaboration and communications perspective, we're expecting to see more and more AI-powered contact center experiences start to become mainstream, which is great because that can provide better customer experiences, operational efficiencies, and then extending those capabilities of tools like Teams and Zoom. You've got some exciting use cases around enabling frontline workers So if you can bring your line of business and third-party apps into apps like Teams, then what you can do is you can unlock the ability for a frontline worker to have access to technology to allow them to feel part of the organization, collaborate and communicate more effectively. And it's about more than just providing them with access to chat and meetings then. You're actually plugging in those applications that they need to use to be productive on a day-to-day basis. That also prevents or solves some context switching issues. So even more productivity all around as well for the information workers in your business. And then from an operational excellence perspective, I'm expecting to see a focus on organizations getting the foundations right here. So something that they can build upon. So getting your CMDB and your joiners, movers, leavers processes into a better place. The reason for that is because there is a lot of promise around using artificial intelligence inside your IT service management tools. But of course, you're only going to get value out of those tools if the data that sits in them is of significant levels of quality and it's governed appropriately. It's the same story around Microsoft 365 Copilot, which I covered. This is brilliant because if you can plug in some of the AI capabilities into those ITSM tools, that's going to align perfectly with organizations that want to get more value out of those technology investments. So this is all about the day two operational stuff. 
And again, a strong story and a strong link to our adoption change management there. So make sure that the technology is doing what it's supposed to do and then making sure that the people are equipped with the right level of enablement is the key here, I think. Kieran covered this from a security perspective, super high level. It's about getting the balance right between security and productivity. This is nothing new. But I think the key to that is, as Kieran said, raising your organization's resilience. Because the problem with applying security controls and turning the security dials up to 10 is ultimately that impacts end user productivity and experience and their ability to collaborate and communicate effectively. If we can raise resilience, we might be able to turn some of those productivity experience dials up without exposing the business to any unnecessary risk or unacceptable risk. And then the final one, which I'll cover, is around sustainability. There is a huge increased focus on this. And the story around efficiencies aligns really nicely with anything workspace related. It also aligns really nicely with the stuff Gary covered as well around hybrid platforms. But of course, organizations that take this seriously, like what Softcat have done, it also unlocks opportunities as well. So we're increasingly seeing from our customers that they're demanding that we are more sustainable and we are doing that. Customers are also telling us that they need to deliver workspace and IT services in the most sustainable way. So absolutely, we're expecting to see an increased focus on that. And also, the great thing about sustainability is, of course, it's the right thing to do. So businesses should be doing it. So yeah, that's workspace in 2023 and 2024. Wow. That was that was pretty comprehensive, Jack. We had to ask no more questions. It was just a run. But we like that. That's good. So we cover that. Productivity, digital user experience collaboration, operational excellence, security resilience, and sustainability. Those things are all the bits you just covered, I think. I wrote them down. Spot on. So I think that's a really good place to stop there uh, for part one of this episode. So please come back and listen to part two, which will be available next week. And we'll be talking about things like networking and connectivity, Microsoft, and that big subject of data and AI. So join us next week for Explain It. Follow us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on part two. 